Lord, we just come, we come to you today. We do declare that you're great. We've been singing of your love for us, how you pursue us, Lord. And we're going to look at your scripture today and see. We're going to see how you pursue those you love. How you lead us to truth. And how you change our lives. And so as we look at your word today, Lord, first of all, help us to, to help me to speak things that are true. Help us to perceive things that are true. Illuminate things that we believe that are untrue. Things about ourselves, things about you, things about others. Um, help us to be people who love the truth more than we love being right. So that we can celebrate when you show us where we're wrong. So we ask you to speak, Lord. Your word says that you came, that you might uh, give us abundant life. And so today I ask that the result of this service, of the message of opening your word, would be uh, a deeper experience of the abundant life that you came to bring. And also that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, especially in our lives and our families. And so as we go to your word, Lord, we ask you to speak do go beyond what I can do, what I can accomplish in my time of study or preparation. Speak to hearts, God. Speak to our hearts and change our lives. We ask you, we invite you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you're a guest with us today, first of all, you're wel we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. And um, you may notice that we love... One thing that we love to do is to, to worship through song. We love to worship the Lord through song, and, and we believe that through singing and singing things that the Bible says are true, that it, it impacts our heart. Um, and we're going to look at a passage today where uh, a topic arises over the question of worship. Where is worship to be done? How is worship to be done? And uh, who gets it right? Who gets it wrong? That sort of thing. So... Uh, it's relevant if you're, if you're considering that or you're thinking about that this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 4. We've been studying through the gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, you have a phone that you have access to the Bible, you can open up or uh, bring up John chapter 4. It'll also probably be up on the screen. Yeah, look at that. Um, and so we've been going through and, and working through the gospel of John. And we left off, uh, just as a recap, uh, Jesus, you know, he had, we'd studied about the wedding at Cana. He'd gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He cleared out the temple. He met with Nicodemus, uh, had his conversation with Nicodemus, uh, where he said the famous uh, passage, John three sixteen, that many of us know. And um, then he went into the Judean countryside to preach. And his disciples were baptizing people. And John also was in that area. And so these name places have significance. They're kind of important. If, you, if we had a map up of Israel, he's in the southern area. Jesus is from, grew up in Nazareth. He's from Galilee, which would be in the north. He'd gone to Jerusalem, which was in the south. Although elevation-wise, he ascended to Jerusalem. He climbed elevation, but he was going south. Um, in the same way, if we went south to like the Smoky Mountains, we'd climb elevation, but we'd be going 
down in our minds, I guess you would say, but we would be going up. In the same way, they went up to Jerusalem, even though it was to the south. So Jesus has been preaching in the south, uh, as well as John, and people were, had been following John the Baptist, and more people began to follow Jesus. This wasn't an issue for Jesus. This wasn't an issue for John the Baptist, but people wanted to make an issue out of it. You know, humans love, I think they love competition. They love to see competition. It's a, I'd say it's a trillion dollar industry, I would guess. Um, sports, games, right now, like there's, uh, I, I follow soccer worldwide, and so there's all kinds of transfer uh, sagas going on. Like, anyway, people love competition. And uh, the Pharisees were trying to create competition between Jesus and John the Baptist. They were trying to make it an issue, uh, partially perhaps because they wanted to discredit John the Baptist, um, but also they just wanted to create controversy and conflict. And, um, and so they came to John at the end of chapter 3 and said, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. They're trying to create a controversy. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. It's a beautiful passage. John the Baptist knows his place, he knows his role. he humbly accepts his position. Not only, does, not only that, he joyfully accepts his position. He says, my joy is complete. Jesus has arrived. He's on the scene. My whole purpose was to be, prepare the way for him. My joy is complete. I'm okay to fade out and let Jesus increase. I will decrease. John has the proper attitude. In verse 31 in chapter 3, it goes on, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. And it ends in chapter 3 with this statement. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so this stood out to me as as we came to the end of John chapter 3. John the baptizer references the bridegroom. He references a wedding, wedding symbolism. He says, the friend of the bridegroom waits for him. It's, It's not about him. He's not the one they're there to celebrate. It's not his day. It's not his time. He celebrates on behalf of his friend, and he rejoices to see him. So it ends in chapter 3 with reference to a wedding, and it also ends in the last verse with a reference to a choice or to a decision. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And I think these two things, if you hear me out, uh, John chapter 4, if you know it, is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. These two things lead into chapter 4. Okay, so try to follow with me. References to a wedding and reference to a decision, a fork, a choosing, 
choosing who you'll serve, uh, choosing to follow Jesus and receive life, choosing to reject Jesus and receive a curse. It ties in geographically to where the setting of our story is taking place. So I think this is important. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to uh, paint a, a clear picture for you because I believe it's relevant to where we're at today in John chapter 4. So John chapter 4 begins, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Okay, so Jesus, he heard the, the disciples had heard or, or were aware of this. They're asking questions of John. They're kind of stirring up controversy surrounding this. And Jesus leaves Judea, which is in the south, to travel to Galilee in the north. Jesus isn't leaving in fear. He isn't leaving in intimidation. He is uh, the master of his timeline. He lays down his life and he picks it up. When he chooses, no one takes it from him. However, the time is not right for uh, the, the conflict with the Pharisees to reach its peak. And so Jesus returns to the north. Now, there's a little matter that I haven't brought up is that there's a land in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. That is the, the land of Samaria, right? Uh, the, most, uh, the most devout uh, of the Jews, the most, uh, in their own minds, the most holy of the Jews, when they would travel north, they wouldn't take the direct route through Samaria. They would actually travel to the east and over across the Jordan and up, they would extend their journey significantly to make the claim that they never set foot, they never defiled themselves by setting foot on Samaritan soil. This gives you an idea of uh, the situation between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews, they thought it was beneath them for various reasons to set foot in Samaria, to travel, to interact, um, to have to pass that way, perhaps do business, converse with the Samaritans. Um, and that's all tied into the history. But what it says here in John 4, 4, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Okay? So Jesus had an appointment. There was a route that didn't require travel through Samaria. Most of the rabbis, I would say, most of the religious leaders, those who, uh, who had climbed to the top of the religious hierarchy, if you will, meaning those who were the most religious, those who were making their living, who, who in, the, in the appearance of their peers, the people around them, were at the top of the hierarchy, they would go around Samaria. It says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And, uh, a lot of scholars speculate that Jesus intended for this encounter to happen. I would say that's the case. Jesus knew all things. He knew uh, he's fully God and fully man. That's what John is striving to show us. Jesus goes through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, I'm reading from the New International Version. I'm not sure if my words in the screen don't line up. It's a different translation. So Jesus travels through Samaria. He comes to the well. In the New Testament, they call the town Sychar. In the Old Testament, the name was Shechem. And Shechem was a city 
in a valley between two mountains. We're going to hear the Samaritan woman talk about Mount Gerizim. All right, there's a mountain, Mount Gerizim, and there's a mountain, Mount Ebal, in Samaria. And this was originally part of Israel, the promised land that God gave to Abraham. This is part of Israel. It was within the confines of the kingdom under David, under Solomon. Eventually, Israel split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom by the name of Israel. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And to make a long story short, the Assyrians uh, removed many of the Israelites that lived there, exiled them into other lands, and brought people from other lands and resettled them into this area. They intermarried with the Jews that were left, who were mostly uh, Jews of lower, of a, a lower uh, class. They would remove especially the successful, the important families, the people of note and name. They would take them to other places, and they resettled that area with foreigners, with pagans. And there was an intermarrying that took place and a hybridization of Judaism uh, with what the Israelites brought their religion. These new people that they intermarried with brought their religion. And there was a hybridization that took place, which was why the Pharisees especially and many of the devout Jews looked down upon the Samaritans. They considered them worse than Gentiles because they had uh, hybridized or bastardized their religion, if I may use that word. This place existed between these two mountains. If you know your Old Testament, when Moses was telling the, the Israelites to go into the promised land, he told them to go into this valley and to take half of the tribes and go, six tribes and go on Mount Gerizim. And there they were to read to them or they were to declare or speak over them the blessings of the law. And the other six were to go to Mount Ebal, the other six tribes, and there they were to read the curses of the law. And after they read them, each one, the people were to say amen. They were to validate their covenant. Blessings said on Mount Gerizim, curses on Ebal. And it was that same place at the end of Joshua's life when he brought uh, the people there. And he, there's a famous quote from Joshua. It says, as for my family, as for my household, we will serve the Lord. Do you remember that verse? It was at this place. He said, remember these things. Remember these blessings and curses. It's essentially, choose this day whom you will serve. There was a choice, blessing and curse. Uh, and I wanted to read it. I thought it was interesting. Uh, here's some of the curses they read. So it says, the Levites then shall then respond. This is from Numbers. Uh, well, hang on a second. It's from Deuteronomy 27. And... Um, the Levites shall then respond and say to all the people of Israel with a loud voice, reading the curses. Cursed is the person who makes a carved image or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall reply and say, Amen. Cursed is one who treats his father or mother contemptuously, and all the people will say, Amen. Cursed is the one who displaces his neighbor's boundary marker, and all the people shall say, Amen. I thought this one... Uh, the, Keep going. Curse is one who distorts justice due a stranger, an orphan, or a widow, and all the people shall say amen. Um, and I, I skipped one. Verse 18, okay, this is what I wanted to read. Um, Gretchen, I was thinking about you and, and your cause. Curse is the one who misleads a person who is blind on the road. 
and all shall say amen. So a righteous society cares for the blind people on the road, takes care to note that they're safe. Um, I won't get into the details, but I think it's so beautiful that the Lord cares. He cares for the widows. He cares for the orphans. He cares for justice. This is justice, that we care for those who need our help. And we make a society where they can care for themselves. They can take care of themselves. The blind should not be misled on the road. There should be a, a just and safe society where people can live their lives and go about their way in safety and peace. And so when I said at the end of John chapter 3, it references a wedding or a marriage, and it references a choice. This is the choice. The ge- geography where Jesus comes, this valley between these two mountains is a uh, tangible representation on the landscape of choosing blessing or curse, choosing to serve God or to reject God, choosing to accept Jesus or to reject him. And I said it also represents a marriage. In the Old Testament, when a man, uh, especially a man, a descendant of Abraham, comes to a well, all right, usually something significant happens following that. Jacob, well, here's what's interesting. Jesus left because of the Pharisees, right? He's leaving Judea. He's traveling because of conflict with his brothers, the Pharisees. In Genesis, Jacob leaves because of conflict with his brother Esau, and he has a vision, right? He has a, the dream he, in his sleep. He sleeps on a rock. He stands it up. He has a vision of a ladder uh, going into heaven. And then what does he do the next day, pretty well? Next, next passage of Scripture, he comes to a well, all right? And who does Jesus, uh, Jacob meet at the well? He meets Rachel, who will become his wife after a pretty uh, crazy and frustrating uh, situation. Jacob comes to a well, and he meets a wife. Uh, prior to that, you know, God had given a promise to Abraham who was old and didn't have any offspring, he said, I will make you, your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sands on the beach. And essentially the blessing is, I will bless you, and through your offspring, the whole earth will be blessed, right? And then, miraculously, Jacob has a son, Isaac. And when it comes time for the promise to be fulfilled, the promise, the, the covenant promise to Abraham is at stake. He sends Isaac, well, he sends Eleazar on behalf of Isaac. Where does he send him? He goes to a well, and he meets a woman who becomes Isaac's wife. When the promise is at stake, the descendant of Abraham goes to a well and meets a woman. That's a, that's a known thing. If, if you saw this, if they had sitcoms back then, people would watch this scene. There's a guy at a well, and a woman comes up. And they would start to think this is kind of like maybe a romantic comedy or something like that. Like this is something's going on or, or a, it's a romance. You know, something's about to happen significant. And in the Old Testament, it usually has to do with the promise to Abraham. Isaac, Eleazar on behalf of Isaac goes to well, meets uh, Rebekah. Jacob goes to well, meets Rachel. And in the same area, Jesus fleeing from his brothers, just like Jacob was fleeing from Esau, comes to a well, and he meets a woman. Now, things change here, but I think 
perhaps that John is intending for us to think there's a man at a well. The promise of Abraham is at stake. If Isaac doesn't find a wife and procreate, that promise doesn't carry on. If Jacob doesn't find a wife and continue the promise, that promise doesn't go on. And so the promise is at stake. And we're to think there's something significant happening when this man meets a woman at the well. Okay? Uh, And so Jesus is at the well. In verse 7, it says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This woman is well aware of the situation between the Jews and the Samaritans. Perhaps she's received, she's been on the receiving end of uh, racism and hatred and aggression uh, from, from Jews in the past. She knows this situation. She's well aware of it, and she's shocked that Jesus asks her for a drink. Uh, John also noted that Jesus was tired. You know, Jesus was fully God. John's showing us that. He's divine, but he's limited himself to being fully human as well. He's in the human body. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. He asks her for a drink. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them, I will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. All right, so I want to make some uh, reflections upon this. Jesus says he asked her for a drink. She's shocked, first of all, that he, a Jew, would talk to her, a Samaritan. And so Jesus is breaking social norms. He's breaking cultural norms. He's addressing this woman. And yet it's not really about the drink of water. And she asked him a question, and we don't know the tone of voice. We don't know her inflection. We don't know if she was saying this uh, dejectedly, wistfully. We don't know if she's saying it with sarcasm. But she asked him if he's greater than Jacob, who gave us this well. Meaning, Jacob gave us this well. We drink from it. Yes, we have to come back every day. But he's established something. He set something up here. This well, this city, this land, these people are established by Jacob. And uh, she may have been kind of prodding Jesus because she says, our father, Jacob. To the Jews, to a Pharisee, that would have been a a blasphemous statement. And they would have instantly, uh, their hackles would have been raised. They would have been uh, ready to fight on that point, ready to, ready to aggressively attack her point of view, or maybe physically attack her as well. And so perhaps she's prodding Jesus, perhaps she's mocking him, perhaps she's questioning him, perhaps she's trying to figure out who's this strange Jew that's talking to me. And you'll note something else that uh, she's coming at noon, right? She's coming at noon, and she says, at the end of what I just read, she says, give me this water so I don't have to come back here. And there's maybe something in that. Most of the women would have come in the early part of the day. 
They would have come in the morning in the cool of the day to draw water so that they had water for their chores, water for their needs, water for their household. And she's coming at noon in the heat of the day, and she's coming alone. Most of them would have come as a group for safety, for socialization. It's literally the water cooler, you know, of, uh, of, of the community uh, where the gossip and the talking and the, the, the socializing takes place. And she's coming alone. And we'll see there's something in that. And so that place for her is uh, not a place of socialization. It's not a place of connecting. It's not a place of joy. It's a place, perhaps, um, of shame or humiliation, um, a reminder, perhaps, of something that's gone wrong in her life. And we're going to get into that. But Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he'd given you living water. Just like the interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus takes things from a natural, from the natural to the spiritual. He gives uh, Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is still thinking with his natural mind. And Jesus is addressing the heart of the spiritual issue that needs to take place. And so Jesus, he makes a claim that he can give living water to a person so that they'll never thirst again. And this is a reference to spiritual things, what the Messiah can offer to us spiritually. Um, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which is a well, a living water, a spring burbling up, uh, gushing up within us that uh, eternally refreshes us. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to drink, to draw water. In verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. And so Jesus, uh, knowing everything, he gets to the heart of the matter and he's addressing her reality, her natural, physical, relational reality. But he's trying to get to her spiritual needs, her spiritual reality. I have no husband, she replied. She didn't want to get into details, apparently. She just says, I don't have a husband, um, which is true, but not the whole truth. You know, you can tell things sometimes. You can answer in a way that's true, but that's not the whole truth. And not everyone deserves to know uh, your whole truth, you know, honestly. Like, you can tell people the truth. You don't have to tell everybody everything that you're going through. But I hope that you have people that you can tell your truth to. And Jesus is a person that you can tell the truth to. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And that changes the nature of the discourse. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And this seems to take a turn, right? She's changing the subject from her marital situation to a, a religious question of, of worship. Where should we worship? Um, but Jesus, he's changed in her eyes. He, she says, I perceive or I see that you're a prophet. Okay? Uh, and she asks a question about geography, essentially, the geography of worship. Woman, Jesus said, 
Believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. In verse 26 is where we'll end today. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the first person that Jesus uh, overtly reveals himself, reveals his identity as the Messiah to in this conversation. He says, I am he. I am the Messiah. He reveals to her. I think this is beautiful of Jesus to do. First of all, uh, a rabbi would never speak to a woman in public. He would never, of course, speak to a Samaritan. He would never speak to a woman with a history like this woman. And yet Jesus not only speaks to her, he reveals the truth of his identity to her. Jesus sees her. He gets to the heart of the issue. He names, uh, as uh, Denise sent me a, a passage or something she was reading, he names her shame without naming her sin. And the truth is, there's a, a couple scenarios uh, that could have occurred that maybe, uh, apart from the man she's living with now is not her husband, you know, her husband could have been, uh, she could have been widowed. Uh, they could have left her because of her, perhaps, infertility. They could have divorced her and put her out. There's, there's explanations that we don't understand, but there's assumptions that people automatically made about her. And Jesus doesn't really get in to, and the chosen, you see the chosen, they elaborate on this, that's extra biblical. He starts naming her husbands and explaining it. We don't know the scenario here. But he's dealing with the heart of the issue is that she has a deep spiritual thirst. And she has a need that's gone unmet. Uh, a, a deep spiritual need as we all do. And Jesus sees that. He goes out of the way to encounter her and to get to the heart of the matter quickly and address her need. And to me this is beautiful. Now this woman doesn't become, it's not like the Jacob story. This woman doesn't go on to become uh, Jesus' wife. Uh, there's no romance that takes place. And yet, I said, the promise of Abraham, which is, I will bless you, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. We're going to read later that the promise is fulfilled. She is a carrier of the promise because she goes back to her village and tells the people to come see this man who told me everything I've ever done. So we don't know. Jesus, maybe he went into details. He explained more, more fully the situations of her, of her life. But she said, come see a man who told me everything I've done. She was an evangelist to her community. She was really the first evangelist we see, the first uh, to take this message. She brings people to Jesus, uh, a whole city. And many of them believe later in the book of Acts, it's easy when they go to Samaria, the Samaritans believe that it's, uh, the, the ground has been uh, prepared for them to fully believe in the Messiah. But what we see Jesus doing when she asks a question about Gerizim and Jerusalem, we see Jesus decoupling worship from geography. It's not about the building. It's not about the location. In Christianity, you know, we have people like 
I would love to go to Israel. I would love to go to Jerusalem. But a pilgrimage isn't really a part of our faith. Jesus decouples geography uh, from a relationship with God. He also decouples genealogy. The Jews would have said these people are, are out of the promise. They're exiled from the promises of God because of their mixed genealogy. He decouples genealogy from, uh, from worship, from true worship. And he says true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And I was just I was kind of uh, comparing and contrasting in my mind the you know we have Nicodemus a, a seeker who comes to Jesus and Jesus has this discourse with Nicodemus and Nicodemus is reflecting but he leaves uh, you know we don't know that he's decided he definitely doesn't leave that conversation from Jesus yet preaching does he Jesus Nicodemus was a Pharisee he was at the top of the religious hierarchy. But he doesn't leave that conversation with Jesus preaching the gospel yet, does he? Yet this woman who was at the other end of the spectrum, about as low as you could get, the lowest of the Samaritans, who were the lowest of people who claimed to be followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus encounters her, and she leaves preaching the gospel. She leaves with a purpose. Uh, you can dig into this in the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, I believe her name is Fotini. They say that that's her name, and they have, a, they have a history of this woman. In the Bible, they don't name her, but she was, uh, they put her on par with the other apostles and say that she carried the gospel uh, from that time forward into many different lands. She was an evangelist, a preacher. She, they they claim that she appeared before Nero and uh, preached before Nero. Uh, some traditions say that he tried to kill her in diff a couple different ways, but ultimately he threw her into a well, uh, and that was the end of her life. I don't know if that's like a literary flair. I don't know the true history of that. But this woman encountered Jesus. Jesus saw her. Jesus knew her situation. Jesus was compelled. He had to go there. And he wanted to get to the heart of the matter and give her a new identity to remove her shame and give her a new purpose. And to me that's, I mean, I just love Jesus, you know. Like, it's so beautiful. And I want to tell you today that he wants to do the same for you. He wants to encounter you. He wants to remove your shame. He wants to deal with your deepest heart issues. He wants to heal you and he wants to give you a purpose. You know, in Corinthians it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And we see this woman as a new creation. She's coming in shame. She's coming in solitude. She's coming alone to this well. And she returns and proclaims. She puts herself in the center, center of her city and becomes a messenger, drawing attention to herself. She's changed because she knows Jesus. She's encountered Jesus. And she believes. And God wants to do the same for you. I believe that. He wants to deal with it. Uh, I, I had screenshotted this. I want to pull this up and read to you. This is from a scholar, uh, one of the church fathers. And he wrote, at the beginning of the conversation, Jesus didn't make himself known to her, but she first caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi. Afterwards, a prophet 
Last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of a thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. And she adored the Christ. This transformation of one encounter with Jesus changed who this woman was. He, got, he, uh, he cut to the quick, to use a biblical term. He got to the heart of the matter. And he saw her. He dealt with her gently. He dealt with her lovingly. He dealt with her respectfully. He saw her as someone created in the image of God. Someone who belonged to his father. And he redeemed her. And the promise of Abraham was carried out through her. She sowed the seeds of the promise of Abraham. And many came to faith. The Samaritan village came to, came to faith through her message. It's beautiful. There's so much you can say about it. There's more in this passage uh, that we're going to get to. But ultimately, we ourselves have a choice. We have a choice, like at the end of John 3, to accept or reject this Jesus. We have to deal with who this Jesus is. We have to make decisions about who this Jesus is. Is he just a, a, a traveling vagabond? Is he uh, just some religious Jew from an obscure place, an obscure religion? Is he a good teacher? Was he a, a prophet? But just like one of many, was he the Messiah? Is he your Messiah? We come to a place of choice. But I want to tell you today that Jesus sees you. He knows your situation. He knows your story. He knows the truth of your story. And he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. And so that's, that's I guess, we're all in. I want to ask the worship team to come up. Uh, As I was studying this story and I've been reading through John, I was thinking how, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have this contrast of the Jews and the Samaritans. You have the Jews, Jesus preaches to the Jews, and from among them, people are called out and they choose to follow him. Uh, and there's people among them that choose to reject him. From the Samaritans who had a similar but different enough religion that there was serious conflict. There were people among the Samaritans that Jesus preached to, and there were those that chose him and those that rejected him. And so we often sing a song here, like, uh, break down the walls of, how's it go? Break down the walls of all, my all of my tradition. Break down the walls of my religion. Your way is better. Um, we may come here today with ideas from our background, ideas from our religion, ideas from our our faith heritage. And yet Jesus is looking. It says the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. And sometimes, if we're searching in spirit and truth, we're looking to worship, we're going to come up across things that are different from our background. And that, in that song we sing, your way is better. Your way is better. And so I want to encourage you Pursue Jesus. He sees you. He knows you. 
He'll deal with your shame. He'll deal with your past. And he'll give you a future. He'll give you a purpose for his kingdom. I want to pray for you guys. And then uh, the worship team has a song that I think is really relevant uh, that ties into this. You can almost hear the woman at the well singing this song. Just, I pray for the people here today. I pray, first of all, that uh, despite me, possibly, that you will draw them to you. Uh, my efforts are what they are. Uh, it's my loaves and my fish, which isn't enough to feed these people what I bring. But I ask that you will do more than what I've done, that you'll speak to their hearts, that you'll address the, the issues, you'll address their shame, you'll address their questions, you'll address their longing, and they will see you as Messiah. They will see you as their Savior. And they'll come to you. There'll be people worshiping in spirit and in truth, the worshipers that your Father seeks. And so today, if there's anything that you want to deal with, Lord, uh, I ask that they'll come to you. That they'll come to you, Jesus, and that you will heal them, that you will deal with the issues that they're facing. You will deal with the, the pain and the struggles of the past, uh, the shame, the humiliation that maybe they're dealing with. They'll deal with the, the confusion that they have, the questions that they have. But they will encounter you. And if it helps them to do that, if it helps you to do that, you can come up here. There's not more Jesus at the front than there is at the back, but I'll pray for you. Somebody here will pray for you. There's people here that are worshiping in spirit and truth. They'll pray for you. They'll speak to you. But don't leave here today. Don't walk away from a potential encounter with Christ without hearing him out, without giving him a chance, without asking the questions. So God, we ask you to move over these people. And I pray from what happens today that preachers will go out of here. Evangelists will go out of here. People sharing the gospel, telling about this Jesus will go out of here. And more people will come to know you and to follow you, to experience your abundant life, to experience your healing. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for the people. Thank you for the kids that are here with us. Um, we ask you to move, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.